Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Here's our big idea for us this morning. Jesus succeeds where his people fail so that he might intercede on their behalf. Where you and I fail, Jesus has been fully successful. And so if you find yourself to be liar this morning, Jesus was completely truthful. If you find yourself to be an adulterer this morning, Jesus was completely pure. If you find yourself to be anything that is sinful or against the law of God or the holiness of God, Jesus was the opposite. And thus, he can intercede before the throne on your behalf. Now, this is kind of a strange way of going about this. And really, Matthew has a a very interesting approach for us in Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to just kind of put our thinking caps on and just kind of try and follow along with what exactly Matthew has for us, but I I think we're going to see it in three different phases. And really, the uh, the center of these passages this morning, or this passage, is these various passages that Matthew addresses that he sees as fulfilled in Christ. And so first, what we're going to see is that Joseph is directed to go to Egypt just as Scripture said, and we're going to kind of just unpack how the Scriptures foretold this and in what sense and why. Secondly, we see Herod kills innocent children as as Scripture has kind of, in some sense, predicted. And we'll see that in verses 16 through 18. And then finally, Jesus is directed to come back to Israel, as Scripture said in, in verses 19 through 23. And so what we have this morning is we have a unique passage where Matthew is dealing in types, and he's kind of borrowing from the history of Israel to give an explanation of who Christ is. So uh, let's not get too concerned. I'm going to try and explain all of these things so that we can see them, and then we're going to pull out the marrow of it, rest in the beauty of Christ uh, that I I think Matthew brings us to here in Matthew chapter 2. So let's start with our first point. Jesus is directed to go to Egypt just as Scripture said. Look at verses 13 through 15 that Jesse read for us this morning. Now, when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. See, the first thing that happens is an angel tells Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt, and this happens in verse 13. So the wise men depart, and once again, Joseph is dreaming. If you haven't been following with us, we saw Joseph dream in chapter 1, verse 20, and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. He's going to dream again in chapter 2, verse 19, and an angel of the Lord is going to speak to him. And I think the application this morning is clear, a good nap can be life-changing, right? Like we, we should see good things happening from sleep in the life of Joseph. In fact, I would be afraid to go to sleep if I were him for fear of the turmoil that ha- might happen in my life. 
But notice what the angel says to Joseph. Verse 13, he says, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is interesting because it matches verbatim the language that we're going to see later on in verse 20. And the effect of all this, as Matthew's recording this for us, is that there's a sense of balance to it all. Joseph is invited to into Egypt and out of Egypt by the sovereign hand of God, by the direction of his angels. But notice also how he speaks in verse 13. He says, take the child and his mother, not the child and your wife. The, the angel's focus is here on Jesus. And, and again, the angel doesn't refer to Jesus as Joseph's son, but instead the child, emphasizing that Jesus was born of a virgin. And finally, he gets to the reason for all of this. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him, right? For those of Mandalorian fans out there, right? It's like it's baby Yoda, right? This is such a paltry comparison, but yeah, they're seeking out this child to destroy him. Herod's murderous intent is predicted by the angel. See, in 124, Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And here again, we see Joseph live in perfect obedience to what he's called to. In in chapter 2, verse 14, Joseph is again depicted as the faithful servant who does exactly as he is told. In fact, in Matthew 1 and 2, they they show us this pretty consistent view uh, of Joseph. Uh, There's this formula for God's interaction with him. Joseph has a dream, the angel of the Lord gives direction, and Joseph carefully obeys that direction. And so Joseph, under cover of night, gets out of Bethlehem before tragedy strikes. Now what's interesting about this passage happens in verse 15. See, what verse 15 wants to show us is that Jesus is the new Israel. He's returned from the Exodus. And what we see in verse 15 is Matthew kind of borrows this passage of Scripture and leans on its meaning for his own purpose. See, Matthew highlights the fulfillment of the Scripture in Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2. We have it on the slide behind me here this morning, Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. See, Matthew is using Israel as what we would call a type. And, and you might say, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that Matthew is using Israel as a type? It means that Matthew is re- referencing another well-known part of Israel's history to kind of import its meaning into this passage. It's kind of like a modern, modern songwriter might use Greek mythology, right? They might talk about uh, Ithacus or Sisyphus or some other Greek uh, analogy. Or a politician might borrow from uh, the speeches of Lincoln or, or some other president that preceded him. Right? We borrow from those terms in order to import the meaning of those uh, stories and, and interactions and, and use that meaning in the current setting. See, Matthew's not looking for an exact correlation between Israel's experience and Jesus' life, but he's looking for broad strokes. Matthew's taking the broader story of Israel and seeing it as analogous to the life of Jesus. So, Hosea records that God loved his son, Israel, and 
Because he loved his son Israel, God saved them from Pharaoh by calling them out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. It's speaking of this generation of Moses and how God drew them out through Exodus. We remember this story from the book of Exodus in chapters 1 through 15 that God raised up his servant Moses, that he called him and sent him back into Egypt so that through the powerful working of these plagues, 10 plagues, he would draw Israel out, that he would tear down Pharaoh. And finally, in the 10th plague, as, as God actually takes the firstborn sons of all of these people of Egypt, he finally hands over the Israelites back to Moses and to God's people. Well, in the same way, God loved Jesus too. Even though they fled, the Israelites in Exodus fled to Egypt, or from Egypt, excuse me, uh, Jesus is now fleeing to Egypt, but the broader connection remains true. God saved this son through a migration, through a move. Jesus is pictured as the true Israel who goes down into Egypt and returns from exile by God's hand. But Matthew has more connections for us here. It's not just that he sees Hosea 11 as being fulfilled in this story of exile and return of Jesus. He actually wants to draw on more of Israel's history as well as we look at verses 16 through 18. And here we see that Herod kills innocent children as Scripture had predicted. So look at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. See what happens in verse 16. Notice it's just one verse here in our passage. Uh, Matthew describes the slaying of innocent children. And so Herod acts despicably in verse 16. And Matthew invites us into the heart and the mind of Herod. Look at the verbs that are kind of attributed to Herod's action. Herod saw. Herod became furious. Herod sent and killed. There's a progression that happens in the mind of Herod. First, he saw. That is, his trickery with the wise men had been undermined. Remember, he tried to trick these wise men. He was saying, well, when you find him, come back and report to me in in verse 8. And when the wise men are directed by God to return another way, it ruins Herod's plan. And for a man like Herod to have your plans kind of thwarted, that's that's not an option. And so Herod develops another plan. He becomes furious, as it says there. Like a a child who doesn't get his way, Herod is so angry. Literally, the the passage actually says he was exceedingly wrathful. And just here that we see kind of the monomaniacal uh, inclinations of, of King Herod. He has something in his focus that he cannot get out of his mind. And so he is so narrowly focused on this particular task that he is going to accomplishment, accomplish it. So he, he actually sends and kills all of the children under the age of two in this entire region. See, it's true this morning that history books have no record of this event. 
And this is kind of a problem for for some Bible scholars because we would think that if an entire city of children were killed, there would be some type of external record from historians like Josephus or whoever else it might be. But here's the truth. Bethlehem likely had a population of about 1,000 people. And just for reference point, that's about 125th the size of Troy. Uh, a thousand people is not a, a very large city at all. And, and so the, the overall number, like just by numbers of population, we're talking about 10 to 20 babies that were uh, killed. 10 to 20 male children under the age of two. And that's not to take away from the horror of what is described here. What it is to say is that this probably didn't rank in the top 50 of Herod's worst achievements. It might not even have been noteworthy. This man had killed multiple of his own children throughout his life. He had done atrocity upon atrocity, and this likely might not have even kind of made the list. In verses 17 through 18, Matthew turns our attention to something deeper underneath this. In verse 17, is saying that this was the fulfillment of a prophet, uh, Jeremiah, and his word. And in verse 18, there's the quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now take a look at the passage uh, that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a verse is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now what in the earth, on the earth is, is this passage talking about? Well, first let's back up. And Jeremiah 31 is, is overwhelmingly positive in a book that's decidedly negative. Uh, Jeremiah is recording for us the, the sure exile of God's people as, as Jeremiah the prophet goes and speaks and speaks and speaks to these people that will not listen. And sure enough, in Jeremiah 31, we, specifically in verse 31, we hear this prophecy about this new covenant that God is going to strike with his people. But here in verse 15, we have a, a kind of a negative tinge on that, and it's kind of tapping into Israel's history. First, what is Ramah? Ramah is a city or a town just north of Jerusalem, and it's classically kind of known as the, the uh, burial place of Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Remember Rachel and Jacob? Rachel was the, the favored wife of Jacob, the, the mother of some of the sons of Israel. She would have been the matriarch of the people of Israel. And so what's happening here, what's being described is, is the exile in its earliest form. So when, when the kings of Israel had rebelled against God, as Jeremiah predicted, eventually uh, God would send in the Babylonians and take over Jerusalem and all the people of the, uh, the, some of the men of the nation would be gathered at this city, Ramah. They would walk by this historical site, the, the burial place of the matriarch Rachel. And then they would be shipped off to Babylon or to Persia or wherever else. You can imagine the heartache that's described in this passage. And what uh, the previous passage described for us was Exodus. This is really referring to exile, to that time when Israel was dispersed amongst the nations and when God had so disciplined and chastened his people to separate them amongst the nations and and set them outside of their God-given land. See, Matthew is leading us to think of this exile, that Jesus is also one who experiences the hardship of being taken from his homeland, brought down into Egypt, and then returned. 
Jesus is the one not only who went through the exodus that came up out of, Israel, or out of Egypt by God's faithful guidance, but he's also one who went into the depths of the tragedy of exile and came back in faithfulness. But Joseph isn't done. He's going to have another dream, and Matthew still has more scripture to interpret. And so what happens in verses 19 through 23 is that Joseph is directed to come back to Israel, as Scripture has said. So look with me at verse 19. But when Herod died, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. See, what happens here is an angel of the Lord shows up again in a dream to Joseph and directs him to say, uh, those that were going to take your life are now dead. And so rise, take the child and his mother and go back to Israel, right? And so what Joseph obeys in verses 21 and 22. But he runs into a little problem in that uh, the son of Herod, Archelaus, is still there. His son is reigning. And if Herod was bad, Archelaus was just as bad. And so they decide not to live in Bethlehem, but instead kind of take a little sidetrack to this town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is like a a town of poor reputation. It was considered backwoods. Think about how we speak of of those from Appalachia, right? Now, I have West Virginian heritage, so if you feel condemned, so I'm condemning myself, okay? But the recognition is that we we speak of those kind of as backwoods or, or kind of off the map, Right? Well, this is what Nazareth would have been. In fact, in fact, when, when Nathaniel uh, hears about Jesus, the Nazarene, he says this. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth in John chapter 1? See, the same Jesus who was born around cattle and visited by shepherds is the one who would be called a Nazarene. And what Matthew wants to do is he wants to kind of pull this out in verse 23. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Again, he wants to draw our attention to how this particular part of Jesus' story fulfills some aspect of the Scripture. Now, here's the problem. There are no Old Testament Scriptures that really speak of Jesus coming from Nazareth. And so as commentators look at this passage, they're going, I don't know what Matthew's talking about. There's not a passage that says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. And what we notice then is is in verse 23 is that so that what was spoken by the prophets, this is more than one scripture that's being fulfilled. We're actually looking at multiple scriptures. Well, again, we still have this problem then of how Jesus was to be a Nazarene and how this was predicted by the Scriptures. See, a commentator by the name of Craig Blomberg uh, gives three options for Matthew's intention. The first is that Jesus was what we call a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who took a vow that they would never cut their hair and they would never drink any wine. Um, They would kind of abstain from all these things. But the problem is that Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. 
John the Baptist was likely a Nazarite. Samson was likely a Nazarite. But Jesus didn't do those things. And so that doesn't really seem to be a good fit. But the second option is that Jesus' description as a Nazarene was referenced to his kind of backwoods upbringing. It's kind of just a, um, they're filling in the blanks. And so there's passages like Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. So to speak of Jesus as a Nazarene was to emphasize that he didn't come from royalty, that he didn't come from a place of privilege, that he was kind of from this backwoods kind of place. But again, I think there's a better option here. See, the name Nazareth actually sounds like the word for branch. Nazareth and Nezer, those words sound alike. And so what Matthew is doing here is he's kind of doing a play on words. Kind of like if someone were to make a really cheesy joke and I would say, well, that's punny, right? It's a play upon words. Now, it's not funny and puns are horrible. It's a crime against humanity. But it's a play on words. We actually take a word and we manipulate it for our purpose. And so uh, what Blomberg and others are saying is that Matthew is actually tapping into this concept of Jesus as the branch, Jesus as the chosen vine that would bless all the nations through the nation Israel. And I want to put in front of you a passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, that would highlight what this branch was expected to be. Now remember, all of Israel would be incredibly familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah. And he says this in chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot, a branch, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. The next slide there. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, what what Isaiah highlights for us in this passage is that Jesus is this descendant of Jesse. He comes from the line of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of of David, the, the true king over God's people that will reign forever. Jesus is filled with the Spirit as we've seen in Matthew 3. We'll uh, potentially look at that later on. In Matthew 3, Jesus fears the Lord. Jesus is the righteous ruler of the whole earth that he judges not by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, but through righteousness. Now think about what that means. He doesn't have to be witness to the infractions that he judges. He judges with complete righteousness. See, Matthew is giving a nod to Jesus as the true Messiah. And so we've kind of taken in Matthew 1 and 2. Isn't this the argument that he's been building this entire time? He took us to the genealogy of Jesus and said he's a descendant of Abraham and rightful recipient of all of the promises made to Abraham. He's a descendant of David and rightful recipient to the throne of David. He's a descendant of Jeconiah, the rightful and true king who sits upon the throne. 
When we hear about the story of his birth at the end of chapter 1, Joseph is told that he is born of a virgin, that he comes from some woman who has never lain with a man, that he is truly very God and very man, that he is the rightful king of the earth. This chapter 2, we've seen time and time again that he is one who is the rightful king, the Messiah that God has sent. And, And Matthew is pushing this in front of us from his genealogy to his birth narrative to what's described in this exodus in exile, Jesus is shown to us as true king, Messiah, who has come to save his people. So we look at this passage this morning, we say, this is a lot of heady stuff for us, Jason. Well, what does it push us to? It, it pushes us to see that Jesus is the rightful king. And as we look, we have to see that this rightful king took on the history of Israel and fulfilled it better than they had. Israel has a, a pretty long history of failure. Like you read through the Old Testament, and, and every time something good starts to happen, somebody messes up, right? So uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he speaks it into creation, and he sets Adam and Eve over the garden. Everything seems to be perfect, right? God looks at it and says that it's good. But what happens in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve rebel. In in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through you, I will bless the nations. And and it looks like God's starting to work something together, and then Abraham goes and he lies about his wife to Abimelech. Uh, In the books of First and Second Kings, we have uh, the reign of Solomon, where Solomon has all of this massive influence, and the Queen of Sheba comes, uh, the Queen of the South comes and, and witnesses and sees all that Solomon has and, and recognizes the massive wealth that they've accumulated, but what happens is that Solomon attracts foreign wives to himself and starts to worship false gods. See, every time something good starts to happen, someone messes it up. So when they're taken from the nation of Egypt and Moses leads them valiantly out of the land of the nation of Egypt, they come to the battle of Jericho and they see the city of Jericho fall miraculously as they march around it seven times and it falls down and and Joshua warns the people of God, say, don't grab any of this stuff. All of this is for the Lord. But what does Achan do? He grabs a few items. He hides them under his tent. And when they go to the city of Ai, they are slaughtered because they have been unfaithful. See, even after this massive exodus that they've gone through, there's just this unfaithfulness that continually dogs them. In their exile, when they're brought back from their exile, and God miraculously uses uh, men to, to rebuild the temple, within just a few generations, they're already being unfaithful to the Lord. See, Israel's history is just wrought with with blessing and failure, blessing and failure, blessing and failure. But Jesus was God's true, obedient son. Jesus repeats the history of Israel, yet remains a faithful servant to his father. While Israel was idolatrous, Jesus was true to his father alone. While Israel leaned on political alliances with other nations, Jesus' trust was in his father alone. Israel at times did what was right in its own eyes, but Jesus lived on every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. 
And so when we talk about Jesus taken into Egypt, brought out of Egypt, Jesus exiled, he's taking on the history of his people so that he can fulfill it in righteousness. See, the truth is this morning, it's not just Israel's history that Jesus has taken on. He's also taken on our history. And it's because he's taken on our history that we can come with confident access before the throne of God. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to a passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And I, I want to kind of just draw this out as, as we kind of even take what, what the author of Hebrews is saying in verses 14 through 17 and kind of just shrink it down into a manageable thing for us here this morning. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Somehow, the author of Hebrews has packed so much theology and so much richness into this verse that it's, it's almost hard to unpack all of it. But let's take it just statement by statement and see exactly what he's trying to get us to. First, he says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Matthew tells us how Jesus was a new Israel. He took on their exodus. He took on their exile. He fulfilled their history. He has become like us in every respect. So Christian, here's the truth this morning for you. Do you face temptation and hardship and trial? Jesus also faced all of those things as well in his life. Are you tired? Jesus woke up tired. Are you tempted? Jesus was tempted. Are you uh, forsaken or forgotten by others? Jesus was forgotten by his own people. Jesus is that one who took on all of our history. He became like us in every respect. And he goes on, he says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He was like us to become for us a high priest. You ever, I'm kind of a sports guy, um, and there's some really great athletes who make really bad coaches. They, they can do it to a high level themselves, but when they invite someone else to do it, it, it fails. Their extreme gifting makes it hard for them to understand how hard certain functions can be, right? It's like if you put me on an NBA team and, and you can bring in the best NBA player and he can show me how to dunk a basketball, I'm not going to be able to do it. Or uh, let's think of it this way. Wealthy politicians can often be disconnected from the reality of a paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck existence. Right? They're, they're disconnected from that. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus has become like us in every respect so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows our temptations. He knows our weaknesses. He is merciful and faithful. Is that how you view Christ? Do you view Christ right now as mercifully 
faithfully interceding for you? Or do you view him as a vindictive, high-minded, distant Savior? The author of Hebrews lays it out with such clarity for us. Jesus is merciful in his orientation to you. He's faithful in his orientation to you, faithful so that you cannot outdo the grace of Christ. You cannot outsin or outpace God's grace in Christ. And so what happens is that he becomes the priest who propitiates. That's this last statement. He's the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You're saying propitiation. What in the world does that mean? Propitiation is this theological term that means to kind of pacify wrath. And so um, in the Old Testament, you would burn incense and in the nostrils of God, so to speak, it would kind of pacify him. The blood of Jesus has pacified the wrath of God that his perfect, flawless sacrifice of himself speaks a word before the throne of God so that he is no longer wrathful against his people. I love this quote from Louis Burkhoff. He says, The whole church was included in Christ as her head. In an objective sense, she was crucified with Christ She died with him. She arose in him from the dead and was made to sit with him in the heavenly places. All the blessings of saving grace lie ready for the church in Christ. Man can add nothing to them. See, if Jesus is our righteous substitute, there's no good works I have left to perform. Everything has been done by Jesus. I hope we might find that as a good word this morning. There's times like Christmas where we just need to be reminded of grace. As we look back on our last year and we see the failings of our spirit, failings of our heart, how we have acted unchristianly at times, we need to be reminded of the perfect substitutionary death of Jesus. Amen? And it's in that vein that we want to kind of turn our hearts and our minds toward application. Jesus is our perfect substitute, but what does that mean for us? It means for us that the hope of the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection, the hope of of Jesus' death and resurrection is that Jesus did life better than us, and now he extends that life to his people. As we started off this morning, are you an adulterer? Are you a liar? Are you given to greed? Are you given to whatever sin? Well, take it to the cross where Jesus was none of those things. And take his substitutionary life into your heart and mind. Remember that he now, before the throne of God, speaks that word before the throne of his Father. We've been kind of uh, approaching this passage with this tinge toward what does this mean for us as, as we are people of mission, that we, we want to go out, we want to be those who share the good news of the gospel with other people around us. How do we uh, kind of take this message then and appropriate it for, for those that don't know Christ? In speaking with, with friends and neighbors, we should recognize that Christian hope in, is in Christ and not in our Reformed life. 
The hope we are to present to others is not our changed living. It's not our moral catharsis. It's not the goody things that you do. It's not the old ladies you help cross the street or, or the cigarettes that you stop smoking or, or whatever else it is. The, the hope that we present to our friends and neighbors and relatives is not our changed life or our morality or anything else. It's instead the life of Jesus Christ that offers to them righteousness that they could never attain for themselves, that offers to us righteousness that we could never attain for ourselves. I remember I was in college, and uh, there was a uh, my wife and I actually met on a traveling singing team, and uh, there was 11 people that were sent uh, for two months through the summer, and we would travel from church to church to church and just lead music. Uh, it sounds really cool, but then you realize it was named the Abundant Life Singers, and you realize how uncool it actually was, right? And so there was this one girl on our team, and her name was Danielle, and I, I'm not going to change her name for the sake of anonymity because I'm mad at her still about this. Danielle had luggage, and she was set to get married after the tour was done. So she had a lot of luggage for whatever reason. And it was halfway through the summer that I'm lifting her bag, and it's heavy as all get out. And I'm lifting her bag, and someone whispers to me, it's because she has weights in her bag. I said, what? She brought weights to work out, and I was lifting them all summer long into this truck. I'm still bitter about this. This is 20 years later. We recognize that we have sinful baggage, don't we? We carry around this this baggage that's filled with weights. A representative of our our guilt before the Lord, representative of how we've been sinned against, representative of of the world that is so complex and hard to navigate. We, We just have baggage. First and foremost in this baggage is this, this, this trunk case of, of transgressions against God. These sins that we've performed time and time and time again. And we're just lugging it all around everywhere we go with us, aren't we? What does Jesus call you to do with your baggage? He wants you to lug the trunk of your guilt, of your shame, of your shortcomings before his throne, your violations against him, the unrighteousness that you would bring into his presence at your death. And he calls you to exchange it for the life of his perfect son. He calls you to unpack all of your baggage, say this heavy weight is the time that I did X to lay it at the throne, at the foot of the cross, and to find there grace and mercy from his high priest. Have you done that? Too many times we emphasize a relationship with Christ that, that will just make us feel better about ourselves, that will make us whole, that will make us whatever. But the emphasis we find here in, in Matthew 3 is one who is perfectly performed the life that God had for him, and now offers a better word before the throne of God. Let's be those who unpack our baggage, and we don't forget our baggage and and hold it against others who don't act like we do, and we always remember that baggage, and we remember, remember that we are recipients of God's grace, recipients of his mercy, recipients of divine favor through the work of Christ, 
And what it does is it produces joy. Unaltered joy in the presence of God. Your baggage is taken away. It's replaced by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. See, that's the message we bring to the world, right? Not a message of self-improvement, self-betterment, the promise of of a financial betterment or life or, or the promise of whatever else it might be. We hold out to the world forgiveness of sins in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there is nothing as valuable. Let's be those who cling to God's goodness to us in the cross. Let's be those that as this Christmas rolls around, what is it, Friday? We remember that God sent his son in pursuit of his people. That God himself is a missional God who lives in pursuit of his own church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for grace and mercy that we just, we, we don't own, we don't know. We can't plumb the depths of your grace or your kindness to us. We, we, we don't even understand the fullness of it. But help us to be infatuated with mercy. To be remembering of who we were. We, as Paul would say, uh, we, we were the chief of sinners. Christ came into the world to save the sinners, uh, which I am the foremost, Lord. You have shown me great grace. And help us to live out our calling as recipients of mercy and kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.